Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. to Nightlight. I'm very excited about tonight's show, but before I get into that, I want to thank Ken Quiethawk for his wonderful intro. You can find him at nativestorytellers.com. It's an amazing site. Please check it out. So tonight, Mark Eddy has an amazing guest. He has the author of Stepping Out of Eden, Dr. Rita Louise. Um, she's somebody that I have followed as far as her career for quite a while, and have found that she is full of all sorts of insights and wisdoms, you know, sprinkled with a sense of humor and certainly a sense of knowingness that is really quite profound for today. So let me bring Mark on first. Hi, Mark. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. How's uh, everything with you and in New England after the Red Sox uh, championship? <laughs> Well, I happen to be a Yankee fan, so I stopped oh, watching okay. quite, quite a while back. Um, it's really, if, if fall is here, I'm not sure we're going to get the color that we once did, but um, it just doesn't seem to be coloring up as much as it usually does. I'm very excited about Dr. Ruth being on, Dr. Ruth, Dr. Rita being on. Oh, I am um, she's somebody that I have admired greatly, and she has certainly mm -hmm. a, a longer career in radio than I do. And um, she's a documentary she has so filmmaker. Much yeah. You, you two I have mean, that you know, in common. Yeah. That's true. I do have secrets. You're right. Um, but she she has always been. Um, I mean, I don't want to put her too high on a pedestal, but she's always been someone that I have hoped that, that my career would, to a degree, follow the success that hers has, has certainly uh, manifested. You know, I'm, I'm quite behind her as far as achievements, but, you know, while there's breath, there's hope. So do you want to give her an intro, and I'll bring her on? Yeah, it's, um, you know, her, her first appearance on Nightlight's long overdue, but we're changing that uh, tonight, and I think Dr. Rita is the world's best-known gamma wave emitter. 
Uh, I would agree with that. Yeah. Uh, you know, her website is soulhealer.com. Um, you know, she, uh, you know, doc, um, as we go through the show, you know, find out, you know, Dr. Rita is a you know, pioneer in, you know, internet radio, leading researcher with uh, UFOs, ETs, you know, other topics in the paranormal uh, genre, uh, you know, you already d- discussed that she's also a documentary filmmaker, and, you know, we'll touch on Icon uh, Deconstructing the Archetypes of the Ancients. Um, she's also earned her doctorate in natural health counseling. Her website is soulhealer.com. Um, but, you know, that's the stuff the public, uh, you know, she wants the public to know. You know, her real bi- biography is that both of us appear in Ancient American magazine number 115. So we'll order a copy, and Wayne needs to get some cardio carrying a bunch of orders to the post office, and you'll see <laughs> if we're the centerfolds. Oh, so, and, wow. <laughs> well, well let, me, uh, let me bring her on. Okay. Hey, Mark. Hey, Barbara. You know, Barbara, hey a great introduction. I'm loving you even more, and especially because you're a Yankee fan and not a Red Sox fan. Go Yankees! <laughs> oh, God, yes. Sorry. For since Derek Jeter, so 25 going on 30 years. All right, totally off to... topic, but my mom has this cutout yeah. cardboard stand-up Thing of Derek Jeter in her room. <laughs> She's that diehard of a Yankee fan. So. All right, I haven't gone that far. <laughs> <laughs> she got it for her birthday. So, yeah. Oh, that's cool. That is cool. So, Mark, you there? Uh, oh, yeah. I'm just, uh, oh. just let, let, letting you two uh, chat. Well, She's got. So much information. I mean, I yeah. haven't read, read yet Stepping Out of Eden, but I, I definitely, it's on my book list, and I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to tonight, too, because the two oh. of you have um, a lot of stuff in common. Oh, it's, oh yeah, it's, it, you know, Stepping Out of Eden is a good one. And well, uh, let's just start off the uh, discussion with a... A quote from her book. Um, on page 135, you can see where she wrote, just about every aspect of a ritual, when done correctly or with feeling, supports internal cleansing. So ho- hopefully, you know, by midnight, everyone will just feel uh, healed, cleansed, Uplifted, have a good feeling about tonight's show. So, I, yeah, I think that was a, a meaningful quote you had in your book. Thank you. Yeah, so, you know, and I think. Oh, go ahead. No, I, I, I was just uh, starting to ramble on about uh, something <laughs> else, and just like you know, in and the characteristic. Dr. Rita fashion, you get us to think about 
ourselves, our behavior, societal norms, but what are they, these behaviors based on? How far back in antiquity are we modeling our behaviors and on whom? So, you get us thinking. You know, I seem to have that bad effect on a lot of people. You know, and one of the comments that I've gotten, you know, from this book and then my last book, E.T. Chronicles, was, but you don't provide any conclusions. And my feeling is it's not for me to provide the reader a conclusion. It's for me to provide the reader with information and data and, you know, I'll say facts, um, quote, unquote, for them to come to a conclusion on their own as to what resonates with them, what doesn't resonate with them, what they think is true or not. You know, because there are a lot of talking heads out there that will tell you a conclusion and then people run around and say, well, this is a fact, when it's not necessarily true. I mean, you know, it's not a fact. You know, it might be an assumption, it might be a hypothesis, it might be a speculation, but it's not necessarily a fact. Well, you know, and I try to be pretty clear but and separating the two. What, 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 you know, you do make that point very clear in your book, the, uh, the you know, Columbus-era people said, you know, the earth is flat. And that, that that was considered a fact, but you know now now that we know more about the the world, we can see that 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 was really you know more of just a theory at the time. It wasn't a fact. Mhm. Well, well, I mean, in the same thing, you know, and okay, some would argue you know, that the pyramids were built to be burial chambers, you know, and we have been told that over and over and over again, but there really hasn't been any evidence produced to conclusively say that that was what their function was. And so what we run around with thinking is a fact is really speculation on somebody's part somewhere in time. You know, and I think it's important for people to separate that part out that there's not conclusive proof. You know, and even with the whole, you know, the earth is flat, I mean, it's the 21st century, and we have people that are flat earth theory people that are contending that the earth truly is flat. Right. Yeah. And, 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 you you, you know, you do provide us with lots of facts, Data from respected sources. It's all you, know, you, have, you do a great job of documenting all the all of your information. So I'm just looking forward to um, learning more of your you know the information you called from different sources and presenting it to us. It, it, uh, I think stepping out of Eden is a really interesting uh, book. Uh, you know, start off with you know, um, the you know, 
think it per, the, the start, starting off with the ancients being very much aware of the topography, geography, um, envi- you know their environments. You know, you know, you give uh, some, ev- you know, the evidence from Australia. How 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 was such a distantly uh, remote island from Asia or Africa populated? You know, they have stories about how they got. Got to such a distantly located place. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, maybe just stare and and uh, look at ha- how knowledgeable the ancients were with understanding the, their world. Well, I mean, one of the things that. How do I want to phrase this? We're coming to recognize, might be the best way to say this, is that, you know, in antiquity, people were very much connected to the land. They were very much connected to their environment. They were connected to, you know, what was going on. And not just from a five-dimensional sense of the word, but I think from you know, like a six-dimensional sense of the word, that they were in tune with what was going on around them. You know, so in more contemporary vernacular, it was kind of like the level of uh, intuition or psychic abilities was just much higher because there was more appreciation for that. You know, but speaking to what you were bringing up, there is a scientist, that was in Australia and was looking at myths of different Australian groups. And one of the stories that they told was about, well, the one in particular that I quote in the book was from this one indigenous culture that said that, well, you see that island over there. Well, at one point in time in our history, we were able to walk over to that area and we would hunt emu and, you know, do all of this stuff on the land. And then one day the seas came rushing in. And ever since that time, it's been an island. Um, You know, and I think this really speaks to, okay, so when we, you know, I write really a lot about myth and our mythic history. And a lot of people say, well, they're just made up stories. You know, they're not really based in fact. You know, then they say, well, you know, the telephone game, you know, which is, you, you say a sentence into the ear of one person, and by the time it gets around a circle, the story is completely different. And they say, well, you know, the telephone game, so you can't really hold it as being true. And so what the scientist did was he got a geologist, and between the two of them, one of the things that they came to recognize was that at a point in the history of that population – they were able to walk across that land and get to that hill on the other side. And eventually the waters did come rushing in. And when they identified where this change in the geographic area occurred, 
was 10,000 years ago. You know, so there is this group of indigenous people, you know, first people in Australia that had transmitted pretty correctly a story about their history that was 10,000 years old. And it's well, interesting because it, after – oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, isn't it, isn't, isn't it true that, that almost it, with every myth there is a seed of accurate truth? And that, that a lot of times the myth is just woven around it as a story to keep reminding the generations to come of something? I think that there are a lot of myths that are that way. Um, I think that um, as you, I think that myth started as facts, you know, mm-hmm. really deep in our history. And then as time moved forward, and, and I'm going to say, and this is in quotes, civilization started to happen, you know, even in very primitive early ways, that they became a little more dogmatized and other story narratives maybe came in that were a little bit more man-made. Um, but I think that when we, you know, really look at our very ancient myth, um, that they were definitely based in fact, you know, even though, um, you know, th- it makes it so that you can remember, you know, because these are right. stories that you grew up on, you know, and ones that you hear over and over again. And, um, you know, and it tells them who they are and where they came from and what their history is, you know. And so for the Australians to be able to, tell a story that has been dated to 10,000 years old. And then fairly recently, there was an article um, I saw on Facebook about a, it was a tribe that was in Alaska. And they claimed that uh, the populations that came from Asia actually lived on this island, you know, and they actually came across uh, from Asia, you know, by sea and traveled by sea, you know, down the coast, and scientists poo-pooed them, completely poo-pooed them. That is until recently where they started doing digs on this island to basically prove true or false these hereditary stories of, you know, the first people coming to the Americas and they found remnants of extended stays and cultures that went back 13,000 years. And so the legends that they had about their people arriving at this island and living on this island actually showed to be true dating back 13,000 years. You know, so it is possible, even though many people don't want to believe it, that we can hold pieces of our history intact through a very specifically oral tradition, you know, because we seem to think history only started when we started writing, you know, and that we didn't have any history before or we weren't able to retain our history from prior to the advent of writing. But these two finds show that we were very capable of doing that and passing it down in relatively intact to further future generations which I think is great. <laughs> and, and, 
you know, pe- people say, you know, like the Viking uh, bards had to know, you know, the, these, you know, stories of, you know, the battle and everyone's weapons, you know, you can't change a word. You know, they had to memorize it to be very accurately. You know, uh, you know, people are also saying that uh, even like a lot of native uh, uh, histories and folklore and mythologies were, you know, really didn't change over thousands of years. I mean, you know, you find that, you know, all, all around the world is people held on to their traditions, you know, without very little change for a a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the <clears throat> stories that you're talking about that the bards would share, you know, and it's not just the bards, but you see this in many cultures, is that the stories were preserved in lyrical verse, you know, so they were sang, you know, or there was some, I'm going to say melodic, poetic verse to them, you know, so that they were easier to remember, you know, and, you know, I like to take things that, you know, we find around us and kind of bring into the present so that we can see parallels today. You know, and I joke around because I would think anybody in the United States knows the words to Jingle Bells. You know, even though we only sing that song, you know, at a certain time of the year, but we've heard it over and over. And, okay, we might not know the second or third verse, but we know the first, you know, we know the chorus. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, or what goes on a Big Mac, you know, or what happened on Gilligan's Island. You know, we retain this stuff because it's we've just it's been repeated and repeated and repeated. And then they go, Okay, but that's not really proving the point. And it's like, but what about the bards using that term? That was their job. You know, it was their job to remember these things. And if you again take that job and bring it into contemporary times, you know, I think everyone has heard a cover band that will play anything from ACDC to Journey to Led Zeppelin, you know, and if you give them 20 bucks, I'm sure they'd play anything you want, and they know how to play the music, and they know all the words to the songs, including the second and third verse. (laughs) You know, which takes a lot to do, but if it's your job, it's just part of what you do. You know, you know, so I think we find where people are still able to have that facility and capability today, but now we have books, we have the internet, so our, you know, we have our cell phones, so we're no longer required to remember our friends' phone numbers. I mean, I can't even remember my cell phone number because I never call myself, you know, and I don't really give it away. You know, I don't give that number out, and so it's kind of like, we've lost that ability to, you know, just pick up the phone and dial it because we just look them up in our directory and, you know, hit the call button, you know, but I mean, I remember growing up, you know, you had a list of phone numbers in your head. I mean, I can remember the phone number of the house, you know, when I was at, you know, five or six years old, I can still remember that phone number. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, good, good examples. Yeah, it's yeah, just another example of as Barbara and I keep talking with more people. You know, find out. You know, so, some things have changed. You know, a lot of things just haven't, and you just find the same pattern going on around the world. But you know, you also. Um, got me thinking about uh, in the early stages of stepping out of Eden. Yeah, you also got me th- thinking about uh, you know like the different kinds of uh, creationists. Yeah, I think I'm kind of like like the fall into the category. You know, you know what you say is like the old Earth creationist, and it's I don't. I think the Earth is older than you know, like the uh, um, the uh, Usher, you know, Usher, whatever. Uh, James Usher. Yeah, yeah uh, mm-hmm. is where you know, he came up with uh, you know, the if you. Add up the ages of all the people mentioned in the Bible, and you know, go, go back a little. Uh, you know, to Adam, it, you know, it's he, he was able to figure out that you know the world's only six thousand years old, and it was created on a Sunday. And that's um, one of my favorite lines. Yeah, I. <laughs> yeah, I just I. I don't really buy I, I, that. I added the Sunday part, Mark. I'll just say I added the Sunday. Okay. <laughs> God rested on Saturday. That's the Sabbath. So obviously, okay. creation had to start on Sunday. Okay. Just saying. Uh, there, there we go. <laughs> it, and it, you know, I, I'm not really into that, but there's, you know, you know I think the, you know, all the creation started, you know, a long time ago. But um, 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 the, there is some kind of source behind it, and I, I, I think that's what you know. You help you know, help me to realize what kind of category I fell into, and yeah, you know, yeah, some of the other. Um, you know, d- different types of creationist uh, thinking, the progressive. You know, it's, it's, you know, that's just another example of how you get people to think about what you're uh, writing. You know, the purpose of your, your book is getting you to think. Um, and then there's also the... Uh, you know, Idea, uh, you know, linked to that, the creation and evolution ideas is, you know, Dar- Darwin's theories. There we are back to the theories versus fact. You know, you know there's, you know, Darwin had some points uh, that were kind of accurate, but so, so is the Bible. So it, it's not one or the other. So you know, can, can you tell us a little bit about you know where you're coming from as you lay the you know foundations for 
stepping out of Eden and where, where you take it down the road. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, contemporary science claims that, you know, we evolved from a simpler life form to a more complex, you know, so from one-celled animals into who we are today, you know, or whatever animal that would happen to be. And then when you look at uh, the hominids species, you know, or hominids, uh, that we evolved from apes into being humans through a series of gradual steps and genetic mutations that over a period of time created a new species. And so that is the generally accepted scientific view of how we came into being, you know. And so, again, one of the things that I really look at with my material is the notion of is there truth in myth? And if there is truth in myth, what, does the myth, what do the myths tell us about who we are? And, you know, so when you read myth, you know, so actually I need to back this up a little bit. You know, and so when people think of creationists, you know, they believe that God created the earth, as you were saying, according to the James Usher timeline, you know, in 4004 B.C., um, and I think it was like October, it was October something, and then, of course, my adding, it was a Sunday. Um, And so, um, you know, so that is, you know, your basic creationist concept. Now, there are some that take into account scientific theories that the earth is much older, you know, and they believe that God created the world, you know, kind of according to the biblical text, and that there were many different acts of creation that occurred over this process of, you know, 4.5 billion years. And then there's a third group that suggests that the earth is very old and God in, intervened with these various acts of creation over the period of time and that in between those times that a species would evolve, but it wouldn't evolve into another species. So like a horse over time was not going to evolve into, I don't know, something else, you know, or, and that, um, you know, but a horse could evolve from being little to being big, but it would still be the same species. And so all of the species were actually created by God, you know, and then um, you have a third group, which are the ancient astronaut people who believe that Humanity or everything was created, you know, through uh, the intervention of extraterrestrials into the affairs here on Earth. You know, and I joke around because the difference between a creationist and an ancient alien theorist is who and what they think God is. You know, where creationists, you know, it's based on Christian concepts, and so they believe in a divine, omnipotent God, where ancient alien people think that these gods are not divine, omnipotent uh, beings that underscore the universe, 
but are actually extraterrestrials that had advanced technology that intervened in the progression on Earth. So kind of with that foundation, you know, one of the things that is abundantly clear when evaluating the mythic records is that there are no stories of a gradual advancement and shifting of animals from, you know, one phase to the next phase. You know, all of the stories talk about God created it, period. And so, you know, and so if you look at that mythic base, you know, it seems, you know, they don't talk about evolution. You know, they don't talk about a gradual change from one thing to another. They just say God created it, period. You know, and so it kind of makes me laugh because, you know, uh, ancient alien theorists and creationists actually have a lot in common, except for their definition of who and what God is. Okay, and since you were <clears throat> just talking about ET engineering, and you know, we we have already uh, t- touched upon you know uh, theories versus facts. You know, you do bring out the the, the uh, Fox P2 gene, which the Neanderthal people had it, but chimps didn't. So, you know, okay, there's not a smooth... Uh, you know, jump from one species to the other according to evolution. So, okay, where do we, you know, how, how do we account for this difference that is found in this gene? Mm-hmm. You know, and we see stuff like that all over the place, you know, not just in human lineages, but in the plant kingdom as well. And we can come back to that mm-hmm. if you want. You know, but in human lineages, um, you know, one of the things that we find are these big gaps, you know. So, and I don't have my data in front of me, but the FOXP2 gene is tied to language and our ability to vocalize. And so that gene, I think every animal has that gene, and it lay undisturbed for millions of years. And then if for some reason there was a mutation that occurred in that gene which gave uh, our early ancestors, so we're talking about like Homo erectus, Neanderthals, you know, back in those days, the ability to vocalize and communicate verbally. Um, but then another shift happened in that gene as well, you know, and it's interesting because it seems like there was a knee, you know, if you kind of look at it from an extraterrestrial intervention perspective, that there was a need that they had a need for us to be able to communicate with them better. And so they made this gene shift. You know, one of the things that scientists can't explain 
is how some of these changes happened virtually overnight with no lead up to these changes. It's just like, boom, it's there, you know, within populations, you know, and, and, and very quickly, you know, the change from like Australopithecus, which was our first upright ancestor to Homo erectus, which, you know, was vastly different, not just physically, but they had culture, they had lost their body hair, they were able to communicate verbally, they were able to utilize fire, they had advanced stone tools. I mean, there were a lot of changes that happened, but this whole giant series of changes happened in less than 3 million years, which according to the theory of evolution shouldn't be possible. You know, because they're able to, like, statistically figure out how much mutation should be able to occur over a period of time. And they can't explain how so many changes happen so quickly with such a positive outcome for them. Right. So, since, you know, it's brought up, you know, what what could account for you know, these sudden and dr- dramatic uh, changes in humans? It, it, you know, another ex- uh, scientific fact you bring up is uh, the you know the case of Victor. You know the fair. One of the feral uh, children that were studied, and you know, I'm, you know, working down to- towards uh, modeling our behaviors. So that, that that's mm-hmm. kind of so. If you wanted to talk about Victor uh, briefly, and and just kind of start tying things together. Sure. You know so. You know, one of the things that I go into a lot of depth in in stepping out of Eden is what makes humans be human. You know, and I'm a little bit of a Trekkie, so there are like Star Trek references in the book, sorry. But I think most people have seen Star Trek and know generically the different characters in, in the uh, shows. You know, and so when you watch those shows, it's like, a Klingon acts Klingon, you know, and, and they go around, you know, it's a good day to die, you know, and they have this cultural heritage that is very Klingon versus the Vulcans who are intellectual and they're emotionless, you know, and, and so, you know, it's part of their cultural identity, you know, where humans don't act like Klingons or Romulans. But humans, as a species, we all kind of act the same. You know, we all have the same set of base morals. You know, regardless of where you go on the planet, you know, it's like it is thought of as, you know, and I'm going to say a sin, for lack of a better word, to kill or to steal or to, you know, there's this whole set of morality that humans have, you know, and expect from other people in society. 
Not that we're necessarily all that good at it, but it is just part of what it is seen uh, as is being human. Um, you know, and so, you know, the question I asked in, in the book or asked myself as, you know, when I write, it's like I might have an idea of kind of what I want to do, and then I just kind of start asking myself questions. Well, but what about this? But what about this? Um, you know, so if there is this inherent part in us of what it is to be human, you know, how did we get there? You know, and so I spend a lot of time talking about that. But where it gets interesting, and there aren't very many cases, um, is what, with what is called feral children. And so feral children are children who are somehow separated and isolated from human interaction. And so the most uh, significant case um, was this boy who was named Victor, who when they found him, he was like uh, 12 years old, and there were some hunters in the woods, and they just found this boy who was like, jumping on animals and picking it up and eating them. And, um, you know, and so they finally got him to come into town with with them. And he went and was living with this doctor who was trying to acculturate him to humanity. Um, You know, he couldn't speak. He didn't know how to use silverware, you know didn't wear clothes. I mean, you know, the list goes on and on because he lived like an animal in the jungle because there had been no contact with humanity. So he didn't learn the rules of humanity. And, um, you know, and after working with Victor for a really long time, they discovered that the window for acculturating him had really passed. And so he learned a few things, but never was able to rejoin society. And I think over the years since they've started documenting these cases, there have been 100 cases of feral children. And actually, there was a video uh, or a documentary that was made about feral children, you know, like this one girl who was kept with the dogs, you know, in the yard and lived in a doghouse. And so she acted like a dog because that was where her contact was. And so what it led me to believe was that, you know, being human isn't just an inherent part of us. You know, so we get a dog, you know, we get a puppy, and the puppy is separated from its parents, you know, so from the other dogs, and it comes into our house, and it still acts like a puppy. You know, and then it's up to us to train the puppy however it is, but, you know, but it still acts like a dog and it still has its inherent nature. But with humans, you know, in these cases, what we discover is that if you take a human baby and separate it from other humans, it does not develop into what we would consider human, you know. I don't really know what you would call it, um, but it doesn't, you know, we don't come complete with social values. We don't come complete with morals in the same way. Um, You know, we don't come complete with an ability to 
understand all of the nuances that society requires us to know and understand, you know, don't put your elbows on the table, you know, I mean, things that we just think are normal and second nature to this is what you do in society, you know, but it turns out or it appears that many, if not most of the traits that make us human are actually taught to us, you know, that we learned them at some point in time in our development. You know, and it would be very interesting, <laughs> although highly unethical, you know, to do an experiment, you know, where you would take a child away from its parents and allow it to grow up on its own, you know, whatever. But, I mean, that would, I mean, it would really, it would be terrible to do, um, you know, so we have to rely on these cases of when it does happen to have the opportunity to observe what it's like when a human is not brought up and raised inside of the societal constructs that we have, you know, and so, you know, and we see some variations, you know, like, you know, the difference between being brought up in America or being brought up in China, you know, I mean, there are some cultural differences that we see as far as, you know, what the social norms are, but for the most part, we're pretty much the same. Mm-hmm. And maybe some, you know, one, one of the uh, interesting aspects of stepping out of the Eden is, you know, may bring up, uh, yeah, the cargo cults, you know, some of the body modification, uh, body painting, <clears throat> facial masks, and you know, like, you know how you know you give us a, you know, these dates. Of, you know, a lot of this stuff just goes back to you know almost like the time of uh, Gobekli Tepe, you know, when that was built, or even. Before then, you know, on you know, cave walls. So, so you know, one of the intriguing aspects of your book is like, so, so what are these behaviors based on? Like, uh, you know, blood, uh, the cultural. Um, it, it, uh, mores about you know, uh, uh, touching blood or uh, of an animal or uh, you know feasting. You know, so 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 what are you know, some of the you know we have to be modeling our behaviors and being taught by someone. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. You know, you know, well, yeah, yeah, it's inter- It's interesting because many of the things. So, you know, I'm going to kind of create a little foundation here. So, when I go and 
wrote this book. I did the same thing at ET Chronicles. This is kind of one of my little soapbox things is that when I look at things, what I'm looking for are global parallels. You know, and so, for example, um, in China, they have the practice of foot binding where they will actually wrap the foot and as it grows, um, you know, it's not able to expand and then they end up with these really tiny little feet. Um, but when you look around the globe, you only find that tradition in China versus um, some of the body modifications, uh, elongated head, circumcision, uh, tattooing, you find that on every continent, you know, which says that there's some deeper level or much more ancient tradition tied to it. Um, and so, um, I mean, I, I, my feeling is, is that, you know, these things were told to us. I mean, why, you know, on a couple of different levels, you know, you brought up about, you know, touching blood or interacting with blood. It's kind of like, why would we come up on a global level that there is something inherently, uh, I'm going to say sacred with blood that requires us to ritually purify in order to remove, and I'm going to use the word taboo, from us, you know, and it's not just having to do with menstrual blood, which I think many people are familiar with the concept that, you know, there was a taboo tied to it, um, but it had to do with uh, slaying an animal. It had to do with, you know, like tattooing or, uh, uh, you know, any kind of body piercing there might be blood tied to that procedure, you know, so there was a whole taboo tied to that interaction with that bodily fluid. You know, in many cultures, um, you know, blood was seen as being divine. So it wasn't, you know, it's interesting because menstrual blood, for some reason, at some point in time, shifted and appears to have gotten a very bad rap. You know, and I think it, the shift happened when the cultures went from being matriarchal in nature to patriarchal in nature, where it became dirty, you know, where in any other culture, when you're talking about blood, it's seen as a divine fluid, you know, and something that was divine was also seen as being taboo, that you weren't supposed to touch it. You know, where taboo meaning not that it was necessarily bad, but that there was a prohibition tied to it. You know, so it could be pro prohibited because it's like too good, you know, like you're not good enough to touch it. Or it could be because it's bad. You know, so like the king or the god king wasn't supposed to be touched because it was taboo. Or, you know, I think a common story that people would recognize is, you know, Moses climbed to the top of Mount Sinai and he took his shoes off because he was going to be stepping on holy ground, you know. And so that ground was taboo because it was holy ground. And, um, you know, and so this concept of these items being sacred or, you know, not good, 
you know, we find everywhere and there's a consistency to it. You know, body modifications, we find a consistency to the things that were done. You know, and if you experience the taboo, we find a consistency to what needs to be done in order to not be taboo. But if you think about it, who came up with this stuff? You know, one of the things that I talk about, especially in the body modification area, is, you know, did a group of guys sit around a campfire one day and decide, well, hey, let's, you know, just mutilate ourselves, you know, and, and put bands on our children's head so we can stretch them out and have them be in pain for the first three years of our lives? Yeah, that sounds good. I mean, it's just, it's counterintuitive that anybody would do that for fun, you know, or for a fashion statement, because I don't get the impression that back in those days that people did things, especially like that, for fashion. You know, there was something much more practical, much more implicit. Um, We know from some cultures, um, the Aztec, for example, um, that the king or the god king would... um, either pierce his tongue or pierce his genitals in order to produce blood because that was considered the most sacred blood, you know, the blood of the God King, you know, and so, but, but there was this huge ritualistic tie to what was going on. It wasn't that they were just, you know, like piercing their tongue, you know, there was, there was a method to their madness even though it, from today's perspective, we don't really understand what that was about. But for them, there was a very specific purpose. But again, who made it up? You know, and the only place, but when you look at the mythic record, you know, we're told over and over and over again, regardless of the culture, is that the gods told us what they wanted in order to be worshipped. You know, so the impression that I get was not that we decided to tattoo ourselves and circumcise ourselves and crush the heads of our children, but that at some point in time, it was an edict from the gods. And then over time, it became tradition and perhaps became dogmatized and just became something that you did, you know, and the true meaning of it kind of has gotten lost through time, although you can kind of piece together parts of it. You know, if you look at a broad enough spectrum of cultures and everyone is saying very similar things about, well, this is why we do it, um, you can glean some information as to the real reason why we started a tradition in the first place. And you you do bring up some of the early god kings uh like the uh Oan, and I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly the fish teachers and you know the the book of Enoch's the watchers I, you know the these otherworldly teachers uh you know and you make a lot of use of the uh, uh Epic of Gilgamesh. So you know, there's like you know three of some of the earliest uh, or earliest uh, 
the stories are um, you know, document these uh, you know, uh, teacher, uh, teachers who ha- had had these capabilities of uh, teach, teaching the, the uh, uh, people the art, the, you know, these kind of arts. Mm-hmm. And it's very consistent. I mean, you know, I joke around and say that humanity, based on the mythic record, seems like a pretty dumb lot because there aren't any stories of, you know, Fred discovered fire or, mm-hmm. you know, Mary Sue discovered agriculture. You know, it's always the gods taught us or the gods gave us. They gave us fire. They gave us agriculture. They gave us metallurgy. They gave us knowledge of the plants we could eat versus the ones we shouldn't eat. You know, one of a a very early story that comes out of Australia is that the the gods gave them digging sticks. Okay, digging sticks. And they would use the digging sticks in order to dig up roots like yams and I'm going to say potatoes, but I don't know if they have potatoes in Australia. I know they have yams. And, um, maybe it could happen. Uh, parsnips, you know, but you know, that story suggests just by on its face value that prior to being given the digging sticks, they only ate things that came from bushes and trees. And it was like a giant aha moment that they could take this stick and dig up these root-based plants and then cook them and eat them. I mean, you know, today we sit there and go, well, yeah, but apparently at one point in time in our history, we didn't have that knowledge, you know, but the gods gave us the digging sticks and taught us what roots we could eat. Mm-hmm. You know, and I just find that really interesting. And I feel like when you hear stories like that, it kind of dates it, you know, and then some of it, you know, there are um, a number of references that talk about, you know, what plants are good for medicinal purposes. You know, you hear right. that, you know, like what foods are good to eat, what ones you shouldn't eat, what ones are good for medicinal purposes. And one of the things that uh, there was a, a burial, and actually it was a Neanderthal burial, um, just outside of Shinar Cave. And one of the things that they discovered Uh, with this burial. So there were actually a number of different things that occurred. One, it was one of, it was the first uh, identified um, intentional burials. Okay. Because this individual was laying on his side. He was in a flexed kind of like a fetal position. Um, The body had been covered with ochre, you know, so there was ochre on top of the bones. Um, And one of the things that they found in this burial as well was the pollen of a number of different plants. And so when they analyzed the plants that he was buried with, it turns out that all of them had medicinal properties. You know, so they weren't necessarily there because they smelled good or looked good. 
you know, but they were herbs. And so it's been suggested that this person might have been a medicine man, you know, or some kind of shaman, healer, you know, whatever word you want to put with that, um, you know, that understood the use of herbs for healing. And so when he died, they buried him, you know, with these ritual offerings um, so to help him into the afterworld. Um, but where, to me, it gets interesting is that this burial is 90,000 years old. You know, and so it suggests that our understanding of medicinal plants goes back perhaps that far. It, you know, we and, think that a lot of this stuff is new, and it's not. Yeah, and, you know, the her- herbs in that burial sound like they had some kind of cultural significance, you know, as well as you know, pertain to his job during life. It's you know just just really fascinating that you know, you gave us that example, and you know Barb has an, an example of the uh, you know giants in a, in a cave. I don't know if she wants to get into that. Uh, uh, Wait, later, are you talking but, about the, the the Nevada ones? Uh, the, the well, Red, the uh, G- G- the cave in Germany that you well, Brighton Wiener Cave, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's like you know, there's you know another. You know, Dr. Rita has you know s- several examples of all this. Uh, you know, the cave paintings and burials, uh, you know, deep within the cave, and then just in the uh, at, at the mouth of the cave, like you know, this uh, shaman she's talking about. I mean, you know, we're, we're finding all these, you know, really uh, fascinating uh, facts about, you know, cultural uh, rituals done in caves. Fine. I, I, I was mm-hmm. just, uh, yeah, yeah, you two have that, that in common. I was just. Trying to think of Barbara <laughs> wants, wants to uh, bring in her her little giants in front, tie it in. I don't, I don't know. I My just, little giants? <laughs> no, yeah, they're big giants. Is, yeah, I, I've got a ton of information on giants on my website, but he's talking about a a cave in Britain, Britain, Winter, Bavaria, and in 1530 something. The townspeople, 25 of the townspeople had heard about this cave, went up and investigated it and found all sorts of mummies and and, um, bones like crazy and they were frightened. And so they all left and and they wrote a letter of report to the town hall, town town council, I guess. And that letter is is there now. It's available now. And um, the site where it is was used during World War II as a concentration camp for British and United States um, officers and um, and then later on made into a um, United Nations site. And um, Patrick has a fr- had a friend who was there with the UN um, people 
and they went into to see you know they'd heard about the cave they were worried that the bones in there um were of the the uh US refugees and not refugees uh, you know prisoners and they were their thought was if we can gather enough bones we can have DNA done so that people can be notified and um when they got in the cave, they it, it had been this, you know, it it had been, you know, ran, it, I mean, it, it was destroyed, but the cave was still there, and there were millions of bones. There there were places where there was five feet deep with bones, and um, nobody's ever done anything to it. And at the, at the moment that Danny was in the cave, it had, it was in a site that was where they were doing live fire. So that so that they the military and the UN didn't care if they destroyed this historical place and um, you know it's just a little upsetting to think that our country is that disrespectful of things they don't understand. Well, you know, you would have to admit that you know giants existed, and you know there might be something that exists outside of the box. You know, and so maybe they just wanted it to go away because it was just one of those anomalies that are just pesky and they don't want to have to deal with. I mean, you know, like the Gobekli Tepe to me is a perfect example. You know, I think if they could make that site go away, they would be happy because it is just such an outlier, you know, on the basic concept of human development and human civilization they can't explain it, and they don't want to, you know, and they don't want to provide cogent explanation or, you know, they, don't, they just don't want to deal with it. I don't even know how else to say that because it doesn't fit, you know, and so. Well, wasn't Go Blecky Tepe buried, you know? It was it buried. Was, it was, yeah, deliberately buried. About yeah, 8,000 so B.C. Mm-hmm. And what's amazing is the carvings on those stones have dinosaurs and all sorts of amazing animals um, that, mm-hmm. that you, you, would, you would not suspect would be there, but there they are. And some are extinct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, and they say that it was built 12,000 B.C., you know, but they don't really know that. They know the bury, you know, the burial time because there have been uh, remains, you know, and flint mm-hmm. work and things that they were able to date, and so they have a reasonably good dating of when it was buried, but they really don't know when it was built in the first place, you know. But well, it takes lot- the whole date. <clears throat> Yeah, no, I, it I it takes the it. whole dating thing and throws, you know, well, what about Stonehenge? What about Saksiwaman? What about the pyramids? You know, it it yeah. makes those potentially be outliers as well, even though we package them very neatly into the timeline. <laughs> well, a lot of a lot of them, I mean, at Goblecki, um, they're T-shaped. Do you have any idea as to what the T-shape was for or what it did? You know, the purpose of the fact that they're T-shapes? Um, I, 
I mean, not really. Um, some people have suggested that they were designed that way in order to better support a roof. Uh, which, okay. Okay. You know? Maybe. And, and that's possible. It's, it's definitely mm-hmm. possible. Um, you know, but we don't really know for sure. Um, and we probably will never know for sure. <laughs> probably um, not. You know, and... and you know, and so, um, and I know Mark knows this, you know, but I'll just share it. You know, I wrote an article about why Gobekli Tepe was buried, um, you know, because people have said, well, it was buried for future generations. It was buried so it wouldn't get destroyed, you know, a bunch of, a number of few different reasons as to why they would bury it. And so in my article, I suggested that, they buried Gobekli Tepe because the land was sacred, as if there was someone very, 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 very important that lived there. And based on the rules of taboo, because when, you know, we didn't have laws, you know, until, you know, or the word law, you know, and so, you know, moral conduct, moral conduct was based on a series of what we call taboos. And, you know, that if that land, so one of the things about that concept is that if something was too sacred, then it was taboo. You know, so touching the God King, taboo. You weren't supposed to do it. You couldn't touch his personal property. Um, If the God King walked across the ground, that land now became taboo which is why many cultures would carry the God King on a litter. Because if he stepped on the ground, then regular people like you and me would no longer be able to utilize that space. And so if that site was indeed taboo because it belonged to the God King, then nobody else could use it. So, and this is, this is just total conjecture and speculation on my part, but just to make a very strong point. So if that territory, you know, that complex was used by a group of extraterrestrials, a.k.a. the gods, you know, it would be an extremely sacred site. And it would be a site that no mere mortals could go to. And so what better way, because... If a site is taboo, you can't use the stones, you can't use the rocks, you can't use the sticks because everything in the site is sacred, you know. And so if you take a stone, it's kind of like a virus. If you take a stone and put it into a different building, now the new building you just constructed is now taboo because it carries, you know, the, the energy or whatever from the other site. And so what a better way to prohibit the population for generations to come from accidentally coming in contact with something taboo, but to bury it. And I don't know, to me, it seems like a very cogent theory or at least a possible theory. Um, makes except, sense. I mean, it makes sense to me and it actually makes a lot of sense to a handful of people, but you know, I'm not Graham Hancock or, you know, one of them people you know, so obviously it can't be true. It's like, well, they just made their thing up too. So come on, leave me alone. 
I mean, I think it sounds better better than they buried it for future generations. I think that's the lamest thing I've ever heard. I mean, that thing's well, 16 acres. You know, it's huge. Yes, you don't it, just it like bury stuff because, oh, well, you know, our great-great-great-grandchildren might want to see it. Seriously? Doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> No, my thought was that quite possibly they were being um, raided or there was there were um, armies coming at them and they buried the site to hide it from an invasion of some sort. But it's 16 acres. I know. That would take, that's a massive undertaking. So if you have invaders coming, I mean, you've got a week or two. I mean, it took them, <laughs> it took them a long time to bury that thing. They didn't yes. have a bobcat. <laughs> yeah, they didn't have a bobcat. <laughs> True. Yeah, but, so. But, yeah. yeah. So, oh, I mean, it saying. would be a massive undertaking like building a pyramid to bury something like that. You know, that would just take a big labor force. You know, and then all of those people that participated in it would be taboo. But. But they did say that it was intentionally buried. That it wasn't and a they know, of time. Correct. And they know that from the stratification of the remains that were found inside the buildings. Right. That's correct. But to bury 16 acres worth of monuments, you know, it would take more than a week or two. And if you, there's a rival clan that's going to come attack you, you know, they don't give you six months notice to let you know that they're going to come and you're going to bury this thing. And I think it would probably take them more than six months to bury it anyway. Oh, undoubtedly. Well, how yeah. about the flood? Here, here's a five years heads up. <laughs> we're going to, we're going to come attack you in five years, you know. <laughs> well, could the great flood have just washed the sand over it and, and it could be buried that way? But the evidence doesn't support that. You oh, know, it doesn't true. There's support no that it was natural. Yeah, but you know, but they it there's not layering that you would see because of a natural phenomena. You know, and it ended up becoming a hill. I mean, there was so much dirt that was put in there and flint stuff and bones and fill material that was put into that to bury it. You know, I mean it's called what, Potbelly Hill? You know, that yeah. the burial became a hill. Well, it certainly is a beautiful site. It's kind of frustrating to not know what the heck it was there for. Yeah, and the part that I find frustrating is that no one really wants to ask that question, you know, or, you know, try to put it in context and maybe, you know, we look at what the timeline is. You know, people just really want to stick with that. You know, the Sumerians were about 4,500 B.C., and they were the first culture, and they're the only the first ones that ever did anything. And, you know, again, you know, sites like Obekli Tepe take that out of the equation. You know, and it brings to the forefront, you know, could the, the Sphinx, for example, be you know, seven, twelve, or more thousand years old 
as Robert Schock has speculated. You know, and when you see a site like Obeckley Tepe, it says, yeah, maybe. You know, it mm-hmm. just gives it more ammunition that the, the dating that we have put on a number of these sites might not be right. And I think that scares a lot of people. Well, they have to rewrite the history books. And they don't want to do that. They don't want to do that. No, I mean, I've had people, you know, and I've had people make the comment that, you know, they remember in their history classes that, you know, they talk about the Egyptians being the first civilization and they just like totally ignored the Sumerians. You know, and it's kind of like, that's kind of interesting since they like had the first of like everything. But uh, you, you didn't ignore them. You uh, in- included the Anunnaki and so, so some of the mm-hmm. artwork of you know, the, their culture with you know, the giant god kings and you know the little, uh, you know, I guess, nor- smaller sized people compared to. Uh, you know the person that's represented as the uh, elite of the culture. Mm-hmm. So you know there's just, so, so something was going on in Samaria that it isn't being brought up in the history books either. But you know maybe you ought to uh, you know market uh, stepping out of Eden as a history book for high schools. <laughs> Okay, I'm good with that, and buy lots of copies. Um, Well, you know, and it's interesting that the Sumerians kind of get overlooked because, you know, according to researchers, you know, they invented the wheel. They invented astronomy. They invented writing. They invented uh, wheat. They had the first system of laws. You know, so the laws that documented, you know, written laws predate Moses by almost a thousand years. You know, so they have all of these things that we see as being the first, you know, predating uh, Egypt again by almost a thousand years. You know, and so, you know, how you can just over, oh, you know, agriculture, that was in that area too. You know, so how you can overlook them, I just find kind of remarkable. Just okay. kind of. <laughs> no, and, and some of these, um, you know, yeah, yeah, since, since we've been t- you know, talking a little bit about, uh, you know, if there is like some kind of, Invasion, invading force approaching Gobekli Tepe. Um, people may have buried it so uh, they could go back once the you know war is over. I, you know, it's, you know that you know, there's that possibility. But you know, uh, in in your book, you also bring up other. Um, you know, culture clashes like uh, you know the 
Miles Standish types uh, really didn't uh, think very highly of some of the uh, native uh, dancing and uh, practices going on. Uh, They they really, you know, the English colonists really missed the whole point of you know the drumming and uh the DMT and it's not like we're you have to give that little disclaimer out there but you know they 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 just didn't have an understanding of the you know, the tr- true spiritual practices that were uh, uh going on when they encountered them so you know so, so since we were just talking about uh culture clashes you might want to talk a, a little bit about the difference in, you know, like these, uh, you know, like you know what we're kind of joking about at the beginning of the show with the gamma uh, waves and uh, ohm and you know, the other earth vibrations that uh, you know the Jamestown and Plymouth Colony people didn't understand. Well, I don't think it was the Jamestown and Plymouth Colony people per se. I mean, I think, um, you know, well, in the Americas starting off, I mean, we had the Spanish that came and the conquistadors, and they didn't, you know, understand anything that was going on. Um, You know, but we had a period in history where there was European expansion that happened around the globe, you know, whether it was the Americas or later on Australia and New Zealand. And there was a mentality coming out of Europe that we are superior and they are inferior because we, you know, quote unquote, have more technology and we're more civilized and uh, they're not. It's like, oh, wait, but you have guns and they don't. You know, so... You know, so it, it became pretty kind of one-sided that way. Um, but with that, they would encounter these indigenous cultures, you know, and they all they could see were their differences. You know, no one ever spent any time looking at who they were and what they believed, and no one ever looked for the similarities between the two cultures you know, they just looked at them as being primitive, heathen, backwater, you know, less than human individuals that they could take advantage of. And, um, you know, but what they didn't realize was that many of their beliefs, many of their traditions that they hold sacred are also held sacred in you know, and I'm going to say more modern religions, you know, and I'm, I'm speaking definitely more pointedly toward Christianity. You know, they believed in uh, ritual purification of an infant after it's born. Oh, in Christianity, that would be baptism. Um, you know, they believed in, um, you know, communicating with God and connecting with God, you know, and they believed that there was a, an, an all you know, a creator God, you know, not then, now they did have multiple gods, 
Um, but they did believe that there was a supreme creator being like you find in Christianity. Um, you know, and so there were many things that you do find in, you know, Western religious traditions that you find in these other cultures, except it's just packaged in a different way. And in more modern Western cultures, there has been a really big separation between us as individuals and our interaction with the divine where the, these people, you know, there was a much closer interaction. You know, in the West, it's like, you know, it became very sanitized, you know, and you went to church on Sunday, and that was it. And there wasn't this ongoing relationship with something bigger than themselves. You know, it was just isolated to these things, you know, and or you sin and you're going to go to hell, you know. And so that was the divine retribution. But if you look at the concepts and precepts and uh, the whole package, taking a step back, the parallels between the two religious doctrines are remarkably similar. You know, it's like, you know, they would use herbs, and uh, uh, fragrant woods that they would put on the fire, you know, in order to create a, you know, an aromatherapy type effect um, that would make you be more open to uh, that connection with God. You know, in church they use incense. You know, I mean, there's just so many parallels that, but again, it was the way that it was packaged. You know, but if you look even at, um, actually, um, I posted, um, I've been taking quotes from the book and posting them on Facebook with like a picture behind them. You know, so if somebody wants to find me on Facebook, it would be like Dr. Rita Louise on Facebook. And, um, and so the one that I put up today, I'm trying to remember what one I put up today. Anyway, but somebody was, oh, I was sitting there. Because one of the things that I talk about is finding God through chemistry. Um, because there are some cultures that would commune with God through an esoteric or an ecstatic experience where they would use fasting and rituals and ritual purification and then dancing and singing in order to create an ecstatic state so that they can commune with God. You know, there are other cultures that their method to doing that might have some of those elements, um, and they would use some kind of uh, hallucinogenic substance, you know, ayahuasca, uh, mushrooms, peyote, uh, nicotine, you know, whatever it was they would use to help them create that ecstatic experience. And, um, and I was going somewhere, and I totally lost where that was going to be. So I guess I'll just be quiet now. Um, sorry. It happens sometimes. Um, okay. Right. Um, well, it, it was, it, you know, we had been talking a little bit about, um, you know, uh, 
culture clashes, uh, you know, so, some of the, um, di- you know, you, you were just talking about di- different ways to connect to the divine. Mm-hmm. Is that ringing a bell? No, not really. There was definitely a point that I was getting to, and I I lost it somewhere in there. Okay. But I'm well, sure in about 20 minutes it'll come back. So, <laughs> so we can just move on. Okay. Well, <laughs> yeah. You know, since uh, you know, you know, uh, we do uh, both contribute articles to Ancient American Magazine. Um, you know, you know, we do. Encounter you know the topic of diffusion coming up, and you know you do bring up that uh, you know there are genetics that uh, you know like you know we've discussed in several cases so so far where you know just you know we're all just basically one uh, people you know we just you know we all need to take care of. You, you know the uh, uh, little and you know, there's just like this g- genetic I- I- impulse to take care of uh, you know a baby uh, you know so, so, something like that you know f- find a shelter for ourselves but you know so has that helped us to you know develop independently or uh, have you know these ideas just you know been taught by you know say one of these fish teachers uh you know, like the um that we mentioned earlier and you know that idea was uh you know went out from one source around the globe you know i thought that was uh you know, you know that topic uh uh, it keeps coming up in all kinds of different uh, articles in you know, Ancient American Magazine or Atlantis Rising. So, you want to talk a little bit about that? Uh, well, topic? you know, I mean, we were talking earlier about how, you know, the gods, you know, taught us everything that we know, you know, and gave us everything that we know. Um, you know, in my book, E.T. Chronicles, you know, one of the things that I talk about, there's a chapter called Unnatural Selection. And I'm going to say I suggest, I'll take the, the rap for this, that, you know, that we didn't necessarily evolve naturally, but that we're a domesticated species. You know, and domestication implies that there is a certain level of training that happens, um, you know, as well as, and I'm going to say some genetic shifts. And I'm kind of saying that tentatively. Um, So, for example, you know, cows are domesticated. Chickens are domesticated. Horses are domesticated. Um, You know, they... And in order to, you know, dogs are domesticated. And so in order to domesticate an animal, um, you have to train them, you know. And so, I mean, we can train a lion to do tricks, 
but there's kind of a different thing. It's like domesticated animals, and I'm going to say tend to be more passive in nature. Um, one of the things that they have found uh, through testing, um, and there was a, an experiment done by this woman with um, wolves, and so she took some a group of wolves and kind of trained them, you know, like brought them into the fold, you know, treated them more like dogs, you know what I mean? So they were around people all the time and then bred them, and they noticed that there were some shifts that happened actually physiologically. Their snout became shorter. Their fang teeth became smaller, you know, and so they were shifting from having that very angular, long snout that you see on a wolf to being flatter like you would see more on many dogs. You know, and if you look at the evolution of humanity, you know, at one point in time, you know, our mouths were, I'm going to say, protruding, um, you know, and I would assume that our teeth were somewhat different. And, you know, over time, our face became much flatter, you know, and part of domestication implies that there are rules that live our, you know, that govern our lives, you know, so for our dog to stay inside the house, you know, it's like it needs to learn that it's not supposed to pee and poop in the house. That's rule number one. You know, don't tear up the furniture. That's a different rule. And if you don't comply with these rules, that there's going to be a punishment associated with it. You know, so like if my dog had an accident, so let's say, you know, in the house, all I had to do was like, you know, maybe walk by it. Or, you know, sometimes I would be gone for, you know, a really long time and she just had to go, you know. So she'd go by the door and I'd come home and she wouldn't be at the door. You know, she'd be hiding somewhere and then I would find it, you know. But she already knew that she was in trouble for peeing in the house, you know what I mean? (laughs) Because she had been Um, trained. If you do that, there's going to be a punishment associated with it. Um, we have a caller who has a question for you. Um, his name is Dr. Hawkins. Okay, if I bring him on? Sure. Dr. Hawkins, you're on. Hello. Thank you very much. Uh, hello, uh, Dr. Reedy. How are you? Uh, and, I'm uh, doing great. How are you? Host. I'm doing wonderful. Thank you very much. You know, this okay, is so I'm just going to preface this with this is a little bit late, so I hope your question is not too super hard. <laughs> well, actually, I I just had a um, short comment because I I think a lot of the points that you made were very profound, but perhaps may go over a lot of people's head like an umbrella. So, so I I, I sort of want to um, uh, include another uh, type of information as well. Now, what you talked about in terms of being uh, a domesticated species is very important, and I think that really should try to grasp that. So it's sort of like being raised in human coops, for those of you that are country in nature. You know, you'd raise chickens in a, in a chicken coop. And if, for example, I came and, uh, uh, let your chickens out of your coop, your food source, you would be highly upset. 
maybe there was some type of ancient genetic engineering. Now, I'm not saying it happened. I'm just saying maybe. Maybe there was a type of ancient genetic engineering and manipulation of the collective consciousness which was responsible for the so-called fall of man. And with this fall of consciousness, maybe there was this group of, let's just say, entities that engineered, uh, socially engineered us, if you will, Mm -hmm. to be docile, to only use a fragment of the mind's power and things of this nature. And I'll close with this here. Think about this. We have all of this technology, and we are still hunting each other down like animals. How much sense does that make? It doesn't make any. But that's a great point, and I actually have commentary on that. So cool. And I wrote notes down, so maybe I won't forget what I'm talking about. Uh, You know, and I think, you know, there is being domesticated from an external influence. And I feel that at one point in time in our education that we were being told this is right, this is wrong, this is how you grow crops, this is how you treat each other. You know, with the fear of divine retribution, you know, so when you look at taboos, if you break a taboo, the fear is of divine retribution, you know. And so if you think of your dog, you know, and they pee or poop in the house, I could see where they could see me as divine retribution because they would get it. Um, But your comment about uh, the fall of consciousness, and so, you know, this is bringing in a concept that I hope isn't too challenging. Um, you know, but in Indian cosmology, they talk about cycles of time and they talk about something called the yugas. And so um, the yuga preceding the one we're in now was called the Dwarpa Yuga. And it started about 780,000 years ago. And it was, I have to count, it was the third. So there was the first yuga, the Seta yuga, then the Treta yuga, then the Dwarpa yuga, and then the Kali yuga, where we're at now. And, um, you know, so the Seta yuga, we were at our highest level of consciousness, and it was considered the golden age. And then the next yuga, we had dropped down and, and lost like 25% of our level of consciousness, um, silver age. The Dwarpa Yuga, we had dropped down, you know, according to Indian cosmology, 50%. But what I found very interesting, you know, because I kind of go through this timeline narrative of this is where we were. If this is the first man, you know, what does history say or the archaeological record or the mythic record say as we evolve through time? And so what was really interesting to me was that during this Dwarpa Yuga around 780,000 years ago was when caste systems were put into place. You know, so we find the different caste systems, which included the Brahma caste, who were the holders of sacred information and religious tradition. 
Um, but it also included a bunch of rules and regulations. And so if we're looking at when, quote-unquote, domestication happened, where there was a series of edicts that were put into place about this is what you need to do and this is what you should do and shouldn't do, and the, the development of, you know, I don't want to say a moral base, but of edicts, I think that's the best word, of, this is appropriate behavior versus inappropriate behavior, it seems like that period, which again ties to a lessening of our sacred consciousness and a closer tie to the material world. And so since we couldn't navigate ourselves anymore, they had to come in with a bunch of laws and regulations to teach us to or try to control us through something that was more mental and less spiritual because I think people that are more spiritual in nature and are of a higher vibration are able to self-regulate better and yep. easier because we're empathic and we're, we're not going to go and kill somebody because we just wouldn't do it, period. We're not going to steal from somebody because we just wouldn't do it. You know, so if you have to tell somebody don't steal their stuff, you know, you've already evolved to a level of consciousness that I have to tell you, you know, like, don't steal my stuff. Really? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, but uh, according to Indian cosmology, that whole system started to come into play about 780,000 years ago, which I find fascinating. But on the same breath, Based on the level of domestication, you know, there's them telling us what to do and giving us these laws and giving us these edicts, but now we're a, we're a well-oiled machine and, you know, we don't need outside sources to tell us what to do because we have parents that teach and tell us what to do and teachers that tell us what to do. And so we've right. set up this whole system of self-domestication. That's right. You know, that we don't need the gods to do it anymore because they were pretty smart. They set it up so that we would do it ourselves, to ourselves. Very true. It's very, very true, and I pray that the people can really hear your message. You know, I I, I would say to the masses what uh, my good friend Igor says all the time, listen to her with the other you. Listen with the other you. Thank you. Thank you for your confidence in me and my work. (laughs) Thank you, Dr. Hawkins. Thank you. Uh, uh, Do do you have any more insights you want to provide? Me? Well, I do, because... There's another caller, if you have time. Oh, oh, good. Oh, oh, okay. Okay. This is uh, Jay calling from Canada. You're on the air, Jay. Yeah, thanks for taking my call. Hi, Jay. Hey, Rita. I just uh, got a question regarding um, uh, death and how it's actually viewed in different cultures and ancient traditions. I find that nowadays that Death is never really talked about, kind of shoved under a table and not discussed, and people are lost after someone has passed on. 
or you know, or um, an animal or things like that. So, have you looked into that? What the ancients, you know, talked about death or how they taught death when you know, when um, like in school or you know, or how it was passed on. It just it seems so so um, missed and in and not even talked about in the modern society nowadays. Um, kind of a two-part, I think, answer. You know, okay. it's interesting because when you look at the different gods, you know, I'm going to use the Greek pantheon because I think people recognize the names the most readily. You know, we have Zeus, the sky god, and we have Poseidon or Neptune, who's the god of the waters. And we have Hades, who's the god of the underworld. And when you talk about the god of the underworld, that character is never drawn on pottery. You know, there aren't really songs or praises or people didn't pray to the god of the underworld, but everybody knew who it was, you know, because they knew inevitably they would be meeting the god of the underworld at some point in time. And so there was always this kind of hesitancy and scary thing kind of tied to that whole concept. Um, not that they didn't know about it. It's just that they didn't really talk about it. Um, as far as death in itself as a physiological act, um, I feel like the general concept that you find in many cultures is in the notion of life after death. Right. Um, you know, I mean, there are a lot that believe in reincarnation. I don't really delve into that concept in the book because I didn't want it to get too woo-woo. Um, but, I mean, I spent a whole chapter talking about, actually, I'm talking about ghosts. But you can't really talk about ghosts unless you're talking about death. And there was a huge belief that if a person didn't have a proper burial, their spirit could come back and haunt you after you're dead or after they die. And so great care was taken to ensure that the transition from life to death was a good one or an honorable one. Um, you know, but that also implies a belief in life after death. There is a good number of cultures, not all, but a good number of cultures that practice ancestor veneration and have the belief that their ancestors can provide them with guidance, can provide them with good luck. Um, many times they will create a shrine to the ancestor. I mean, you see that, you know, in the Day of the Dead in South America, yep. and you see that in uh, Asian cultures. Um, you know, so there is this definite belief in life after death and the connection of the living and the dead, you know, and so you don't really, well, you don't really hear stories of like people going to heaven and that's kind of a lie. Um, you know, there's a belief in many cultures that the souls of people that have passed go into the underworld because that's where uh, you go. That's where the soul rests um, after death. Um, certain individuals were granted access to the heavens where they can become immortal like the gods. Now, this is coming very much from the mythic record. 
Um, I think over time that notion was expanded, you know, from being very specific individuals who were granted passage and given immortality so that they could be godlike, like Hercules, you know, became a god or and got immortality. Um, you know, and that concept got expanded so that, you know, if you were somebody important or if you were somebody powerful, you could go to heaven. You know, the God King could go to heaven. Um, you know, but all the rest of us, we were, we were going with Hades. You know, that's where we were going to hang out. Um, you know, but again, you know, I don't really know anybody that's died and come back to life, you know, and I don't really want to get into the whole near-death experience because we really don't know what's going on with them completely. Um, you know, to report this is what's happened to them. You know, so you know, so even when you talk about death, you know, it becomes a lot of speculation because no one really knows for sure. Mm. That's interesting. That's interesting. Okay. Um my question also is that some of the ancient transition or or traditions um that should be uh, really good for the world right now are really kind of like stuffed underneath the table or in a box somewhere. I don't know. I just wondered if you why some of those, like well, I practice native traditions, and I found that, that they're very helpful in t- today's chaotic society. So I just wondered why were they hmm, kind of like put in a little box with a little lock on it and, and stored away somewhere so no one can see what's going on. <laughs> So I, I mean, that's a great that. question. And yeah. um, when we're not connected to our spiritual center, I'm going to give you kind of an esoteric answer to start. So when okay. we're not connected to our spiritual center, we tend to, one, not be grounded. And we tend to live in a world of the five senses and are controlled by input that we receive by those senses, we tend to be less, uh, we don't go inside. You know, when traditional practices teach you about energy, they teach you about yourself, they teach you about listening to what's going on inside your body, listening to your intuition, paying attention to your gut feeling, you know, observing nature, you know, communicating with the animals, checking in with the trees. I mean, there, there's so much more of a connection, but that connection is an internal connection and not an external connection. You know, and this is going to be like a little kind of side note, but, you know, I had wanted to be psychic since I was 12 years old, and I read all of these books, and you would think that with all the books that I had read that I had been like really freaking psychic, but I wasn't. And it took me a long time. I started taking classes at the Berkeley Psychic Institute um, that I finally realized that it wasn't about the external experience. It wasn't about having a deck of tarot cards. It wasn't about, you know, and memorizing the cards. It wasn't about reading all of these books. It was about the internal experience. But when we live in a five-dimensional world, we're really cut off from that internal experience. And we're not taught how to access it. We're not taught to listen to our feelings or pay attention to our feelings. You know, and so 
we would question authority much more. And it would make it much harder for them to control us if we were, as a people, actually following principles that come out of more traditional religious practices, I'll I'll use. You know, because we would be able to think for ourselves and not just go on Facebook and repeat the headline off of an article and not even read the article. (laughs) <laughs> you know, and have a, you know, and create our own opinion. I mean, yeah, it's, it's kind of sad, you know. It is. Because it is. I think creativity is lost now, anyway. I'm sorry, it's really diminishing real quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, but creativity comes from, you know, and inspiration comes from us being able to turn in and connect to source. You know, when we have those aha moments, it's because we were able to contact a space that was higher than ourselves, that was more global than ourselves. You know, whether you want to call it your higher self, your cosmic consciousness, you know, whatever that plane is, you know, which is where our ancestors in doing the ritual, uh, doing rituals and dancing and singing and taking, you know, psychoactive drugs, that's where they were trying to go to gain information and insights to bring back to share with the community around them. You know, but what I find interesting is that in doing these rituals, even if you weren't the individual who is having the ecstatic experience because not everybody got to that place, there was still healing that happened for the entire community. So if they were hanging on to stuff, you know, emotional stuff or personal stuff, they had the opportunity to let it go and at least have a free and clear energy space. You know, and so there was this regular bout of healing and healing energy that happened within communities that doesn't happen anymore. You know, now you just sit on your phone pushing a bunch of buttons hoping you can maybe get a person on the other side and, you know, by the time you get that person, I mean, I don't know about you, but usually I'm pretty pissed off. (laughs) (laughs) And I need to, like, go meditate, but now i got to sit on the phone with these people. It's like, oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, we live in a very interesting world and very interesting times. And, uh, you know, it just seems to be going more one way than the other way, in my opinion. Which yeah, I find there's a lot of, sad and scary. Yeah, I find there's a lot of separateness in society nowadays that we don't connect like we used to. But you see the stages mm-hmm. on a holiday or Dr. Louise, but you know what happened when the t- TV came out, right before the TV came out. People used to get together and have some, you know, talk and things like in you know, Saturday night stuff. And then when the TV came out, we isolate ourselves within those houses or a person had a house uh, with a TV in it and we go over there and watch what's going on. So, now it's I think it's uh you know, this technology and, and way we way we are scripted in the programming of things right now, it keeps us separated more than ever in some sort of way. So mm-hmm. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> thanks for calling in. You're very welcome, Doctor <laughs> Louise. It's great talking to you. Maybe I'll talk to you again some other time. But thanks Barbara okay. for letting me be part of the show. Yeah, and Our uh, pleasure. Hey, uh yeah, j- Jay, uh, since, since you were talking about creativity, 
uh, hopefully, maybe, yeah, next week we might have uh, a couple creative people on to uh, get get more people thinking and you know, uh, connect uh, to source, like Dr. Rita said. So, you know, we are, are working on developing that topic to re- reverse the trends that uh, you were lamenting. Oh, thank you. I just find it's uh, it's really, really kind of scary out there when people have everything at the touch of a button right now or a touch screen, and they think that's that's the way to go instead of like you know thinking they're aware of things or what they do is they get someone to do it for them. <laughs> Fortunately, right. I think we're getting really lazy in some ways of of actually stepping forward, stepping forward. I think there's a lot of people are stepping back from things, not stepping forward, as in not moving forward, but just stepping up in a way, you know, energetically, right, spiritually, or that way, too. So, yeah. Right. No, I, uh, I'm, I'm agreeing with you, Jay. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, like you said, we might have uh, some uh, creative people for next week's show, Um yeah, so yeah, just I ho- hope you can tune in for that. I, I, I'm I'm working on get, getting that set up, um, but you know I, I wanted to give Dr. Rita some the last uh, couple minutes to tell where she can get Stepping Out of Eden, uh, watch any of her movies, uh, any upcoming appearances. So, uh, Dr. Rita, you can. Uh, yeah, have the last couple. Lay it on you. Prom- yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> j- you, just plug whatever you want. I got two minutes. Okay, so all of my books, Stepping Out of Eden. I talked about ET Chronicles. Um, I've written three other books. They're all available on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. You know, all of your major retailers. Um, my videos. I have Icon Deconstructing the Archetypes of the Ancients. Um, as well as a film called Holy Deception, which is not really religious, but it was a good title, so I used it, but I think people get scared of it. Uh, Both of those are available on Amazon.com as well. You can also purchase any of my books or gain access to the videos on Amazon or Vimeo, actually, through my website, soulhealer.com. Um, I would really appreciate it if you were interested in purchasing one of my books, buying it directly from my website, um, you know, versus going through Amazon because they take way too much freaking money. And it's just like, God. And, and the added bonuses, they all come signed, autographed for free from me, which is priceless. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. If, if we're down to, you know, about a half a minute mark, so it's time to say good night. Th- thank you, Dr. Rita. Th- thank you, Barbara, for uh, making you know, the, the, the show happen. Dr. Rita, you're, you, you're wonderful. And th- thank you, uh, Dr. Hawkins and Jay, for calling in. This has been a great evening. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>